Well, the church that I spent most of my growing up years in um, had an altar call at the end of every service, and many of you probably grew up in churches like that. Uh, and there were basically five options if you came forward at the end of the surface. There were, there were the counselors that would be up front. They would have cards, and there would be five boxes, and, and you had to pick at least one of those. Uh, that was, there was some kind of response. And so it would be to trust in Christ, to become a Christian, be to be baptized, to join the church, to rededicate your life to Christ, or to surrender to the ministry. And so over my nine years at that church in Wiley, Texas, I went forward for all five of those reasons at different times. And some of them, a couple of them, multiple times, I went, I went forward, walked that aisle. But it was when I was in high school that I, I went forward to surrender my life to the ministry. Um, that word surrender, it sounds kind of uh, defeatist, doesn't it? <laughs> like you're really like you're, I don't know, giving up something incredible. Uh, but what, what that meant in my mind at that time, what that probably meant in the church that I was part of, was I was committing myself to pursue being basically a full-time church employee. That was kind of the way in which I thought. It was minister would be my job title. And that career path would would direct, I know I'm not trying to mock that, but I'm just saying that's the way I was thinking. That would define my future goals and plans and education and training in particular. And so my view of, of ministry was, was in that category. And it's, it wasn't very well informed by Scripture. Um, it wasn't all bad, but there, there, it needed refinement for sure. Because the reality is that all Christians are in ministry, in a, in a biblical sense. Ephesians 4.12, in that sense, we are, we are all ministers. But it is also true that the Lord does set apart those who devote themselves, in Ephesians 4.12, to equipping the saints for that work of ministry. We're all ministers, but there are those who are those equippers. And in the context, he talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. These, he said the Lord is gifted to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so there's a sense in which it's right to say that all believers are ministers in Christ, of, of Christ, entrusted with the gospel, as we're going to see in a, in a moment, the mysteries of God. But we can't deny that there are those whom God gifts and, and, he, and he sets apart, he calls by his grace to, to lead the church in this ministry to one another and ministry to the unbelieving world. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we've been in this letter just a few weeks ago, the, remember that imagery, the metaphor, the church is God's field. And so the, the whole church, and, and he's speaking of that church in court, it's God's field, but there are those who are workers in that field. And, 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 he, and he makes some differentiation. The, the church is God's building, his, his temple, but there are those who are, who are building that temple in Corinth. And so, uh, so it's, it's that special sense of, of ministry that Paul has in mind here in chapter 4. And so what he says certainly applies to every person in the church because we all, all are, are all ministers, but he's writing concerning these church laborers, the field workers, the builders, the the, the, the leaders in the church. And, 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 and so don't think like I did growing up uh, about ministry. He, this, this, does, this means more than a, a full-time church employee. That's not, what he's, that's not how he's using this. He's not limiting. There would be dozens of workers in the church at Corinth that he would be thinking of here. Uh, men and women, prophets, 
um, uh, pastors, teachers, evangelists. This is, this is who, he's, who he has in mind. And, so, and the difference between, you know, everyone as a minister and those that are set apart to, to, to equip in ministry, it's not one of, you know, heightened spirituality or because they're more capable and, or because they have, uh, you know, more character or something like that. That's not it at all. The list of qualifications that we find in the New Testament of, of, of leaders in the church, overseers and deacons in the church, the, the thing that makes those lists so remarkable is that they're really not remarkable at all. I mean, they're just normal character qualifications. You look through that list and almost everything that the Lord requires of pastors in the church, for instance, he requires of every believer other places in the New Testament. And so there's no special elitist qualifications. It's being hospitable. It's being prudent. It's being above reproach. It's, it's uh, not being you know, um, uh, uh, addicted to wine, not being quarrelsome, not being free from the love of money. We're, we're all called to be those things. And so it's not, not intelligence. It's not wealth. It's not you know, influence or the ability to, you know, strategically think and plan and, or any of those kinds of things. It's not drive. And so, so this is what the, the Lord has said about this, this differentiation. It's not, again, it's not character. It's not capability. And so let's bring this into the context of here at the church at Corinth. The issue of people, though, of, of leaders in the church, and they, they saw that differentiation, it became... The, one of the major fault lines in this local church context. So the church family was, was being parceled up by the, into these different groups that were identifying themselves with certain leaders in the church. Remember, I am of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. And so they, 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 they prized and identified themselves by their allegiance to a certain leader, and they would look down with disdain upon other leaders and other groups of people who identified with other leaders. And so it had nothing to do with some kind of competitiveness or turf wars between Paul and Apollos, for instance. He makes it clear their, their mission is one. They're together. It's just that people were exploiting these guys and, and attaching themselves with different leaders, and it was causing all kinds of division in the church. So Paul continues to deal with this division throughout the rest of this chapter here and the pride that's behind it, and he lays out what it is that truly sets church leaders apart, if we could use that expression. And it's very different from what the Corinthians thought. And it's probably very different from what we tend to think of when we, when we think about what it is that, that makes a church leader a church leader. And so he gives these five correctives here. And, and how and now he's getting really practical with dealing now to really the issues that they were struggling with and factions in the church over these leaders. And so he gives these five correctives to them. And they're five that I think we really need to hear as well. So the first one is this. First one he says is regard, regard church leaders properly. Look at verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us. And when he says us, again, he's speaking of those leaders in the church there, those, those workers in God's field, the builders of God's temple, apostles, teachers, preachers, pastors, evangelists, and others in the church, those who serve the church in Corinth. We're equipping the saints for the work of ministry there. He says, this is how one should regard us. What? as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how they should regard those leaders at the church in Corinth as opposed to how they actually regarded the leaders in the church at Corinth. And so <coughs> maybe as opposed to the way we tend to think of, of church leaders in our own 
context. And so we have, we have an indication in 2 Corinthians of how, how many in the church there uh, regarded the Apostle Paul, for instance, and probably other groups regarded other leaders. So when they got together on Sunday uh, for meals after their Lord's Day gathering in the city of Corinth, and they sat down and enjoyed a feast together, their favorite meal, the, the, delicacy, the, uh, the, the delicacy that they enjoyed most was that, that wonderful meat of roasted, roasted preacher. And so they, they would enjoy that every Sunday, and, and they would say these kinds of things about Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 10, his weighty his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And so they're saying, he talks a big game when he writes letters. He's, he's good with the pen. When he shows up in person, he's actually quite unimpressive. He's, he's, just, he's a lightweight. Who would ever listen to this guy? And so this is how they're, they're speaking of him. And this is just a sample of the kind of dismissiveness that Paul and and the other leaders there in the church probably faced. And so Paul says here, no, he, this is, here is how one should regard us. This is how you should think about us. Now, now he's, not, he's not making a suggestion. It's not just like off of Paul's brain. This, I think this would help you guys get along better if you would just kind of change your thinking. No, he's saying, no, this is the way it is in God's church. This is, this is the way it is. Leaders, the one you're arguing about, the ones you're, the, the ones you're dividing over, they ought to be regarded as servants who labor for Christ and as stewards of God's mysteries. Both that, that tendency towards kind of hero worship in the church there and that other tendency toward constant criticism of others, other leaders. Those are both shot down with this statement, this first corrective he says, regard them as servants of Christ. The word servant there, it's, it's an unusual word in the Greek. It's not the, not the typical word we find in the New Testament uh, to describe servants. Which is, um, and, and so it, the word is literally translated an under rower, under rowers. And it comes from the shipping industry, which the you know, residents there in, in Corinth, which was a port city, and those, those, those uh, boats would be going across that narrow isthmus there. And so... The, the, these, these under rowers were those servants who were the, the galley slaves in the lowest deck of the ship, and they'd be chained to their oars, and they would be pulling those oars to the beat of their master, and be banging on that drum, and they would be rowing at the command of the master. And so the word, it came to convey any kind of menial, humble, lowly service. And Paul takes that word that they knew well, and he says, this is us. This is this is what a church leader is, a galley slave pulling his or her oar at the beat of the master's drum. We are, we are, we are under rowers of Jesus Christ, not the best of the best, not to be set up on pedestals, to be, to be uh, you know, exalted and made celebrities. No, he says, regard, we're to be regarded as servants of Christ. And, and, and he says they're servants of Christ. They're not the church's servants. They're not the church's employees or hirelings. No, they belong to Jesus. They, they exist to do his bidding. That's what he's saying. So the, and that's not just something that's true theologically or kind of theoretically. Nobody says, again, this is the corrective. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants 
of Christ. And then he says, secondly, regard, regard them as stewards of the mysteries of God. And this is another great word picture. The steward was a, a domestic servant that was entrusted with the management of a household or a state. And so they, they would administer and they would manage the owner's uh, property and resources. They would, they would have to do that wisely and carefully because a lot was entrusted to their care. And so Paul says that church leaders, they're just that. They're stewards of another's resources. And what are they stewards of? The, the mysteries of God. We, we've come across this expression of the mysteries of God. And again, it's not, don't think Agatha Christie. Think this is, this is something that used to be concealed and has now been made plain and revealed clearly. And so in the context of this letter, you go back to chapter 2, verses 7 and verse 10. We know that he's talking about the gospel of Christ. It, it was... It was, it was once obscure, but now it's plainly revealed to us, written down for us in the New Testament by the apostles. And so what he's saying is this is how teachers, preachers, leaders, equippers, evangelists in the church would be regarded as under rowers of Christ, as stewards of the gospel. Not elites. They're not their own to do whatever they want, how they want. They're not the church's workers, their possession, their fundamental task is simply to do what Christ says, dispensing the gospel, God's mysteries, his resources to God's people for their nourishment. This is how to be regarded. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is the mandate that must throb in our hearts. This is the mandate that must throb in the, in the hearts of the elders and deacons and small group leaders and Sunday school teachers and workers in this church. And this is how we are to regard those who are trust, entrusted to serve the church in these and many, many other ways. Servants of Christ, stewards of the gospel. So the question then becomes, what, what is it that makes someone a good steward, a good servant in the church? And so the Corinthian church, they had all kinds of standards that they had created for leaders. And, and, and those standards for the church leaders, they reflected the values of the church. This is the reality. So they rated their preachers and their teachers on basically kind of their flamboyance and their, and their artistry in public speaking. They, they wanted their version of kind of the, the rock stars, the celebrities, the, the great orators and the great thinkers of, of that culture. They wanted their Christianized versions of that in church to be, to be respectable in that culture. And so they, they didn't want galley slaves, under rowers. They didn't want household stewards. That's not the image that they were looking for. And so they had their criteria for evaluating those equippers and leaders in the church, but God has his, and that's what truly matters. And so we have our ideas, don't we, about what makes a good church leader in America too. And oftentimes we just copy and paste those values of our culture, and we just kind of Christianize them and that becomes the standard by which we evaluate ministry and servants in the church in our own day. So we need this corrective too. So here's the second corrective for this, this church and for us. It's, it's remember that God's standard is faithfulness. Remember that God's standard is faithfulness. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so the measure 
of a steward's quality. It has nothing to do with the, you know, the dynamic force of, of, of his personality, his rhetorical polish in speaking. The question is simply this. Is he or she faithful with the responsibility that they've been given? Are they trustworthy? Faithful to do what? Faithful to dispense the gospel of, to, to God's household so that they're nourished and provided for. That's what he's saying. And so it's in the workers in the church that God will bless. The workers that the church really needs, that we really need, they see themselves as faithful stewards, diligently proclaiming the word of Christ, the gospel of God's grace for the good of the church. That's, that's the standard of evaluation. All right, then we move forward. See his argument here. Then the obvious question becomes, well, who then determines whether or not they're faithful? Who gets to decide? Who's, who's evaluating them? Whose opinion really matters when it comes to leaders in the church? And, and the answer is it's the one who's, in, who's entrusted them with the task. It's the master of the household. And so look at the third corrective in verses 3 and 4. And it's this. Is it, we need to consider whose evaluation really matters. Consider whose evaluation really matters. So he's, he's telling, in verse 3 and 4, now he's, he's telling the gospel workers, essentially, by extension, how every Christian, how we ought to think of ourselves. And he does so. He walks us through these three different courtrooms, as it were, and, 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 and ultimately only one of them really matters. So you see first the, the, the courtroom of public opinion, in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, again, Paul, he, he was accustomed to being judged in the human court there, uh, in the court of public opinion there in Corinth. He was used to that. The church members there in Corinth were like callers on AM talk radio are today. You know, they just love to call in and complain about the leaders and, and uh, you know, criticism, performance, comparing them to others. This was the church at Corinth. They, they, they judged uh, they judge their leaders. And the word judge here, it's not in that judicial sense, but it just means to examine, to scrutinize. They, they, Paul, Paul was used to having his ministry picked apart by this Corinthian church. And he, and he was able to come to the place where he said, it's a very small thing. It's a very small thing. It doesn't really matter that much. Now, Paul doesn't, don't, don't take this to mean that that, that we don't need to learn from one another or listen to one another. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, you know, you do you, I'll do me, you know, and, and kind of giving an endorsement of our American individualism where we just all keep our space. That's not it at all. Even the apostles needed correction at times, and even by the church. So he's not saying leaders are untouchable or above criticism. That's not his point. His point is simply saying that, that level of judgment, it doesn't ultimately matter. Ultimately, but what people think. But that's not all. There's another courtroom that's insufficient. And, it, and it's the second courtroom that we walk through here. And it's the courtroom of private conscience. Of private conscience. Look again in verse 3. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. He's saying his own self-assessment, it's, it's really no more important than that biased judgment of the Corinthian church there. And so even if his conscience is clean, he says it proves nothing. Because our human capacity for self-deception, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, it is endless. We can rationalize anything away. So Paul is aware of this. So he says our own estimations of ourselves, they're not any more reliable than the judgments 
of others. And so what does that mean? That means just feeling good about our service for the Lord and in the church. That's not ultimately what matters. Now, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with feeling good and finding joy and pleasure in serving the Lord in his church. But how, your feelings about it, that's not what's most important. You may think more highly of your service than God does. Or you may think less of your service than God does. We, 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 we are not infallible. So when Paul says, I, and when he says, I don't judge myself, again, he's not saying there's no place for self-examination and, and, and self-discipline in, in that way. He talks about the importance of that in other places in his letters. He's just simply saying his, his own judging of himself, it, it cannot... It cannot possibly have ultimate significance because it's incomplete. It's inadequate. We, we're blind, so often so blind to our own faults and our failures. And we, we're sometimes unaware of our successes. And so we're not to put much stock in either of these verdicts, either of these courts, public opinion, private conscience. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? All right. I don't care what other people think, and I'm going to be free from from pleasing people and free from the opinions of other people and, 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 and that unconcerned about biased judgments of others. And I'm even going to be free from that kind of that, the tyranny of that neurotic self-doubt that so many of us you know, have, have, have deal with and, and the blindness of, of self-confidence and overconfidence. Sounds nice, doesn't it? I'm not there. <laughs> Are you? I mean, we, we are enslaved to the opinions of others so often, and we, we're harassed by our self-doubts and, and plagued by that. So how in the world do we do this? Come to the place and say, how you judge me is a very small thing, and I don't even trust my own judgments. How do we get to the place where we honestly say that? Well, it's about caring more about the third courtroom that we walk through here, and it's, it's the courtroom of God. It's, it's getting a bigger, bigger view of God. So this is what we need. The, the, then the only judgment that really counts for, for anything ultimately is his judgment. So because we understand we're, we're servants of Christ, we're stewards of God's mysteries, that's, that's where the emphasis is. At the end of the day, there's only one opinion that really carries ultimate significance for Paul. And he says in verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. And in it's present tense. The Lord is judging me. It's going on all of the time. And, and that, that evaluation will one day be apparent when Christ returns. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But what I want you to see is what really matters most is, is how God views us. And brothers and sisters, He is viewing us. He is inside and out. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And that brings us to the fourth corrective here. Their church needed that we need, and it's this. It's wait for God to reveal his evaluation. Wait for God. And he turns back to addressing the church at large. So he's made this clear. It is the Lord who is judging me. And then he turns back and he says, Therefore, church, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that now, things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So it's important for the rest of the church to, to see that the workers, the builders of the church, are ultimately accountable to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why is that important? Because that's going to help them avoiding judging them in the church as if the church is the final arbiter of ministry success. So, again, Paul's not saying, don't hear Paul saying judgment is, all judgment is bad. And we often hear Jesus quoted out of context, judge not lest you be judged, as if any kind of moral judgments uh, by believers are, are, are unfounded and, and unacceptable and, and, and of any people, in, in this case, church leaders. But that's not what he's saying. In the next chapter, he's going to urge the church to make moral judgments and to exercise church discipline. Later in chapter 14, he's going he's to say they need to make theological judgments and, and weigh or judge the things that they're hearing in the church assembly and, and determine if that's accurate and aligns with Scripture or not. So, so Paul isn't saying the church isn't to judge the actions or the words of men and women, even Christian leaders, not at all. What he, but, but that judgment, it doesn't come from them. It's, it's not theirs to create the standards or theirs to enact it how they choose. It's, it's judging according to God's plain revelation. And we'll see that unfold in just a moment. What he's talking about is, is about the danger of the church thinking that they're in charge of the leaders and that they can judge by whatever standards they choose. In particular, they're judging motives. They're discerning. They, they thought they understood why people were doing the things that they were doing. So Paul's rebuking them for this. He's rebuking them for developing their own standards, not a biblical standard for church leaders. And, then, and, and, then, and those standards were based upon their personal preferences and the, and the values of that culture. And they were, they, were, they were acting as judge, jury, executioner over church leaders and, and, and over anyone who didn't measure up to their own made standards. And so he says, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. When Jesus comes back, we talked about this last week, at that judgment seat of Christ, that final courtroom when it's called into session, the Lord will judge by the perfect standards of his word and of his holy character. And on that day, Paul says, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. I mean, isn't, isn't that why our, our judgmentalism is so foolish in the end? Because we, because we don't have all the evidence. Can we acknowledge that? There are all kinds of things that are hidden from us. That's what he's saying. There are things in the dark that are hidden in the darkness now. And, and we can't read hearts. We can't read thoughts. We can't discern motives. Only Jesus can do that. And so he's saying, hold off. Wait. Don't pronounce judgment now. I mean, uh, there are... Because we, we know this experientially. We, we see this and we've experienced this. There are, there are some leaders that, that seem so effective. We've seen this in the church and can wow people with their public speaking. And, and they can be so uh, you know, strategic in their planning and thinking in all of these kinds of ways and build big ministries secretly. Their hearts are swamps of lust and arrogance and ambition. And they're brought down, and there are others, less gifted perhaps, who struggle quietly, faithfully against opposition and against disappointments and pressures, and yet their hard cry is, Lord, here I am, send me. Make me as holy, as loving, as, as useful as a redeemed sinner could possibly be. So, so the Lord is the one who judges the heart. The Lord is the one who sees the, the things hidden in darkness. So this is why we have to be careful of judging the motives of others, including leaders. 
when only the searching gaze of Christ can penetrate to those depths. Jesus and no one else will expose secret motives of the heart, the things hidden in darkness. And one day, though, he will. He will. That's what he says. Then, when that day comes, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, we might expect Paul to say, then each one will receive his spanking from God, <laughs> his rebuke from God. But he says, then each one will receive his, his the word is praise, commendation from God. We talked about this last week some, but, but the, the, the king of the universe, the sovereign who puts up with our constant rebellion, even as believers, who sought us out at the cost of his own son's life, who he climaxes our redemption and actually commends us. There's that day that, that's coming. Now, just to be clear before we close, it, in this judgment that's coming, you will never hear, if you are a Christian, a word of condemnation. But we have this prospect of, of this word of commendation. You cannot be condemned, believer in Jesus, when that final courtroom is called into session. You can't. It's, it's because of the righteousness of Christ. You are forgiven. You cannot ever be condemned. We talked again about this. We talk about this all the time. But, but listen, we ought to live for that commendation of King Jesus on that day. There's a word of commendation to be spoken over you. Having secured uh, with full assurance the fact that there will be no condemnation for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, we're called to pursue this word of commendation by faithful obedience to Jesus Christ as believers. And I suspect that we will be surprised at how rarely his commendation of our service aligns up with what we thought was the best. The brightest and the best moments that maybe of the opinions of others and of our own thoughts, I'm guessing his is going to look a little different and we will be surprised. Last corrective and we'll, we'll wrap it up. Is this, is that we need to consider that the source of our abilities is God and not man. This church desperately needed to get their mind around. This is what he's been going after since the beginning. It's this, this pride that was latent in them and is latent in us. He says, I have applied these things to myself, verse 6, and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And some of your translations make this more explicit. But there's this saying that he's quoting here. And, and he's quoting something. It's not a biblical passage, but it was, it was probably a slogan or a maxim that was very well known in the church there. Something they heard all the time. And, and, and so it would be like, you know, I don't know, what, we, what do we say? Uh, keep your head in the book or something like that. I mean, we have our little Christian cliches. And so this was probably one of theirs. And he's saying, this, this is a saying, don't, don't go beyond what's written. Don't go beyond what's written. And that, we know what's written is it's used by Paul elsewhere. It's talking about the scriptures. Don't go beyond this. What would it mean to go beyond the witness of scripture? What is he talking about? It, in this context, it would be to boast in human wisdom. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. By supposing that we were or are smarter than God. And remember, he quotes those passages from the Old Testament, from Job and from Psalms. And, and, and he's by, and, but what was happening, by elevating the, the criteria of personal taste of, to the level that enabled the Corinthians to write some leaders off in the church, 
they're, they're not sticking close to the biblical revelation, but they're going beyond it. I think that's what he's saying. And if they will stay close to this biblical line, they will not be, what he says, they will not be puffed up. That's a great image. Just be puffed up, bloated, inflated uh, view of himself. They will not be puffed up in favor of one against another. This is exactly what was happening. I mean, if, if that's the case, if they're sticking close to this, how could they? The more, the more aligned we are with Scripture, the more our boast will be in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's just saying, you're, 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 if, you're, if you're not aligned with this, there's going to be this tendency to boast in favor of one another, but the more aligned you are, that's going to go away. It's going to be deflated. In any case, what's Paul, Paul is arguing here? He's going to ask these questions. He's saying, if, you, if you've received Corinthian church, and this is how they think, if you've received some special insight, some, some good thing, some strength at the hand of one particular leader in the church, is that not the gift of God? Is that, is that not God's, one of God's grace gifts to you? It shouldn't be a cause of pride. That's, that's what he's getting to. And so is this not true of anything that we have of value? Any good thing, any perfect gift, James says, this comes from above. Even if we've worked hard and we've learned and, and we feel like we've done this on our own, it's not the ability to work in large part a gift of God's grace. Even the, the discipline and the, and, the, and the responsibility that we've learned, we've, that's been fostered by the influence of others, and that's God's grace. And so, he, so he's really getting at their pride here. And so he asks these questions, and it just is it's devastating impact upon these, these wisdom lovers, these proud uh, uh, proud folks that thought that they were all of that because of their identification with these leaders. And he says in verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? I know that's not a way we frame the question. Gordon Fee in his commentary, he, I think he, helped, he gets it right. He says, basically he's asking, who do you think you are anyway? <laughs> who do you th-? We get that question. Who do you think you are? And he goes on, what do you have that you did not receive? <laughs> and if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What is he saying? He's saying enjoy. He's saying every, every good thing you have is a gift from God. It's his grace. How could, how could you possibly then boast in it? These, these questions, they, they put an ax to the root of our pride-fueled division, our judgmentalism, our constant bickering and criticism about others, boasting, he says, it's absolutely absurd. Why? Because whatever we have is a gift of grace. And in this, and and listen, and this is wonderful, and I I didn't see it till the end of this week, but I was glad I went back and looked at, at the original text here. And in this verse alone, remember I've said, I say all along in this letter, when he says you, he's talking you plural. He's saying y'all. I'm so used to saying that, I just assume it's there in every case. And, 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 and in this case, it's singular. He, he's not just saying you as a, as a group. He's saying you individually. This is an opportunity for some self-examination here. He's wanting the individual to apply, apply this to his or her position in the church and how they're thinking about the church and leaders in the church. So let me ask you, who sees anything different in you? In you. Who do you think you are? What do you have that you did not receive as a gift from God? What good thing? 
And if then you received every good thing as a gift from God by his grace, why would you ever boast as if you earned it and didn't receive it as a gift? This is, this is what he's getting at here. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to, we need to dwell upon those questions. That, that would be found, uh, a fundamental way to, to, to go from here thinking and praying for the Spirit of God to help you think through those questions just as he and wanted the Corinthian church to do here. So the idea... The idea of being a a worker in God's field, a builder of God's temple, one who equips the saints for the work of ministry. Listen, it is a formidable and, and and a humble calling. It is not something that we should ever boast in or to look at others and boast about them. To whatever extent we're enamored with the idea of, quote, leadership in the church, brothers and sisters, we need to repent. We are simply servants of Christ, stewards of God's gospel. So speaking very generally of church leaders, the writer of Hebrews says something that's sobering. And he says, he's talking about the, the leaders in the church as keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. To give an account. That's a huge responsibility laid upon workers in the church, pastors and deacons and small group leaders and Sunday school teachers and ministry coordinators and on and on and on. So it's not surprising James wrote in James 3.1, you know this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's a wonderful and joyful calling. It has blessings now in this life for those it has the prospect of commendation by the lord to come for those who serve the flock in, in in these kinds of ways like so many of you do but it is never an easy thing to be a faithful steward of the gospel an under rower of christ and and we have that prospect now this is the glorious news and this is why paul can say it is the lord who judges me and not be totally terrified because we have the righteousness of Christ and we have the assurance that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ and we await that word of commendation, but it's a sobering thing. And this kind of service among God's people, it it needs enormous support from God's people, primarily in in terms of praying. Hebrews 13, uh, he goes on, He says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then the next words he says, pray for us. Pray for us. Steward and church, working, praying together for God's purposes to be worked out among us. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It is, but it's not a given. It's not a given. It wasn't happening like that in Corinth, but Paul's saying it can. It can. He's setting before them this vision to whatever it's happening in in this church on Corinth Road, to whatever extent that's that's a reality. uh, I pray by God's grace that we will excel even more in it. 
And he'll allow us to grow in this. So I just ask you, church, this would be just a, another way to walk out here. Pray for, pray for the workers of God's field, in, in God's field here at Baraka Bible Church. Pray for one another. Pray for those that are, that are on, the, on the front edge of that, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We have an elder meeting this afternoon. Pray for us. We've got a lot of things to talk through and think through. And, and weighty matters. And so pray that the Lord would help us and give us wisdom in, 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 in stewarding the gospel, in serving Christ as underrowers of his in this church. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for this image, this vision that we have before us by the Lord. This rebuke, honestly, this corrective. There's this right, beautiful um, picture of the church, the, 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 those in the church equipping the saints for the work of ministry and, and, and working hand in hand for the common end. And then there's the reality of, of the way things so often are. Leaders getting puffed up and proud and, and, and pursuing the, and acting in accordance to the fear of man or plagued by their own conscience or are proud of themselves and, and church uh, members and looking at leaders and thinking, uh, not regarding them as servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel, but, but holding them to standards that they've created or that the world's uh, co-opting those from the world. So we, we need the corrective, we need the encouragement, and we pray that your spirit would sort that all out for us and, and bring it uh, to show up in, in the life of this, this church family. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.